Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a new IS podcast. As you guys might know by now, my, by now, my name is Olivier. Uh, next to me is David, Adrian, Victor, and we have actually four guests today. Um, we have from right, right to left, actually from my side, uh, we have Maria Kershova. Um, we have uh, Jesse Kiriev. Do I say it right, Jesse? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then we have uh, David Savilev. Yeah, um, good, right? Okay, <laughs> and then we have Nicholas Bennett. Correct. Yeah, okay. Very good, very nice to, to have you guys here. Um, today's interview uh, with them is going to be about mainly the situation in Ukraine. Uh, the guys just uh, came back from, uh, from Ukraine. They're journalists and uh, they have been assessing the situation there and um, more about that we will hear in, in any second. Uh, so, uh, very welcome, guys. Um, really nice to have you here. Thank you. Hey. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, maybe we can just get, give you guys a little bit time to introduce yourself uh, to, the, to the, the listeners and tell us like where you're from, who you are, um, etc. So, maybe, yeah? All yes? Right. Yeah, I can start. Uh, so, my name is, uh, my name is David Savelli. I am currently an MPhil student at the University of Oxford, where I study Russia and East European studies, and I focus on ideology formations and protests. And I graduated from Johns Hopkins, uh, focusing on international relations there, with a general focus on anything that can kill you, from nukes to Russia or elevators. <laughs> um, I am a journalist, and I mostly focus on protests and crises. I covered uh, protests and crises on the ground. Uh, anywhere from Hong Kong to uh, Moscow to Minsk uh, to Donbass to most recently Lviv, uh, Western Ukraine. Uh, my name is uh, Jesse Kureyev. I am a graduate of UC Davis, currently working for a human rights charity called Trua. Uh, we're a rabbinic human rights charity in New York. We do work on everything from uh, undocumented immigrants to, uh, you know, like uh, the human rights in Palestine, stuff like that. I am also a former news director for uh, KDVS 90.3 FM and current editor-in-chief of the Cycle News Hour. We're a podcast slash online radio no news program. Uh, we've been on hiatus for the past two years but uh i joined david uh he uh, we're friends and he told me you know he was headed to uh ukraine to do some reporting and volunteer there uh i was like great sounds like a good time to uh you know um do a story maybe uh you know bring some stuff back and you know just let people uh, we serve the sacramento area uh lots of ukrainian immigrants there uh like uh, i think one of the biggest ukrainian expat communities in uh the united states and um i mean i think a lot of them would be very interested in what's happening in the home that they haven't been in in 20, 30 years. If I might interject by bringing some stuff back, he means $100 worth of Wishivankas. Yeah. Also, just copious amounts of candy. I mean, I mean, far, I mean, you think it's a lot of candy. No, I'm talking like kilograms, like so much candy. What's, what's, uh, what's your favorite Ukrainian candy then? Oh, God, don't I, it's not Ukrainian, it's uh, Russian, it's called uh, Karovka. Uh, they're these little like chocolate, like caramelly things. I love those to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's Shalona Bjelka, which is uniquely Ukrainian, and it's uh, it's actually produced by the factory, the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. Oh, uh, yeah. When yeah. you taste Shalona Bjelka, you can really see why uh, Ukrainian people chose him to be the president. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that, 
<laughs> My name is Marika Shova and I'm Ukrainian. <laughs> so I've been um, Ukrainian activist as a Jewish and Ukrainian person, um, Volka, basically making a voice for Ukrainian Jewish people for a couple of years. Couple of years now. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that I can be useful and provide some more information about what's happening in Ukraine today and what this Russian vision has done to us for basically this one month today. Thank you so much for having me. Easy. Nick, do you want to get in here and say something real I quick? I was going to observe mostly, honestly. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fine too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. That, that was his introduction. He is, uh, I'm just going to mostly observe, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe to add to you, uh, Maria, because you've been a bit like the, the, the new face of Ukrainians in Krakow. You've been, in, been interviewed by stations all over the world, right? In the last uh, week. Yeah, some of them never published me, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so recently... Next topic. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, thanks to my friends, a lot of different places have interviewed me, like um, NBC South Korea, for example, or uh, this big Japanese YouTube channel, uh, Tokyo Brooklyn, which is super cool. But yeah, I'm just keep talking, whoever invites me, because I think our voices, Ukrainian voices, are extremely important right now. So whenever the opportunity pops up, I'm here and I'm ready to talk. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, well, let's get into it, guys. You just came back from Lviv. Um, That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I, I, Nick told me a little bit of some of your experiences yesterday when uh, we were talking. And um, yeah, it sounds like you guys had a, a very I don't know if you should say once in a lifetime experience, but definitely a fairly hopefully once experience. in a lifetime experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you guys want to tell us about it? Like, um, uh, you guys, uh, how did you get in there? What did you see? Right. What was important? And uh, I took the bus. <laughs> you yeah, took the bus. The bus. Yeah. Uh, first of all, how was taking the bus in? Because I've taken that bus before to Lviv, and that was not a fun experience when so, I did. I can talk a little bit about logistics, and I think Jesse has the more impressionist of the group. He can talk a little bit more about the general atmosphere in the in the city. So I'm I'm experienced with doing undercover journalism and getting into places where people don't generally want me to be in. Mm -hmm. People don't really want to be, want me to be. And uh, I would say that getting into Ukraine was fairly easy. As far as you have a Western passport, you know American passport, uh, you pretty much given the green light to go through. Um, getting into Lviv is not that much. At least you the buses go fairly regularly. Uh, all you need to do is to get to Krakow, uh, Krakow. Uh, and then you, you know, you get a Flix bus or an Omeo bus or any of those and you're gonna be in Lviv pretty instantly. Uh, finding accommodations in Lviv is a bit harder than uh, prior to the enormous wave of the refugees that completely over, you know, overwhelmed the city. Uh, but even still, you know, there is, there is space, uh, there is Airbnbs and hotels that you can, uh, where you can find apartment. So the logistical side of it wasn't actually difficult. It would have been difficult if we were to try to go further east, which we didn't because we don't have, you know, the, the amount of money that's mm -hmm. needed for that. Uh, you know, if I had, you know, an extra 10, 10K line around, we could have gotten a car, we could have gotten bulkproof vests and driven east, east but uh, this was more kind of a stab at the situation and I definitely want to come back in the summer regardless from whether or not the war is going on. Um, and I hope it's not going to be going on in the summer. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and do something more profound and be able to kind of <coughs> go deeper into the country. 
So as I also see it now, then Lviv is, uh, became a little bit of a hub where people arrive from the central and eastern parts of Ukraine, and then from Lviv uh, try to get to, to, to the west, to European countries, or do these people really stay in Lviv? Um, what we heard is that there was an influx, you know, it's a city of 700,000 people, it's not very big. There was an influx of, of 250 to 300,000 refugees that appear to be staying there uh, temporarily. And that's not counting the ones staying there for a day or two who are passing through uh, West. And I mean, last I heard, the total amount of externally displaced people is 3.5 million. Uh, the amount of internally displaced is closer to 7 million. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, th there's a massive amount of people staying there. Uh, that's about like what probably like 35 40 percent of the city's population has just or this the city has grown by that percent uh and that's uh and like there's more people passing through yeah. the problem is that a lot of people can't actually leave so for instance if you're uh if you're male and you're over 18 and under 60 you're not going to be able to cross the border the ukrainian border guards will stop you um unless you have some debilitating condition and you have papers to prove that um, but so, even then, we were hearing stories of people yeah, with yeah, but even then, it's so yeah, hard. Not getting the past. Yeah. Yes. Can I clarify mm -hmm. why it's happening? Because in Ukraine, unfortunately, we don't have a law yet. So for people who have disabilities, they have to go and prove it each year. Mm -hmm. Even though, for example, for example, you don't have a lag, you still have to go and prove it each and every year, which is a big discrimination. It sounds, yeah. it sounds like dealing with the American Veterans of Association. <laughs> 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 like, uh, what do you mean you don't have a lag? You show up, you have no lag, and they're like. Well, prove that that you don't. Have a I, I can't. It's missing. Basically, that's why a lot of people for now in the areas that they don't have the access to the place where they can get this paper, they're not able to get out. Also, if you have one child or more, that you you are the only one who can take care of them, you can go through the border, or you have three or more children as a man as a man three or more children with you, and you need to save them. Basically, so this is the only condition. So Maria, for reference, has been doing a lot of work with uh, refugees uh, transferring across the border. Uh, and she's been helping coordinate people from Warsaw, trying to get them to find even accommodation in other countries. People that maybe, I mean, they may, might not speak English, might not even speak Polish or any Western European language. Um, and she's been doing a lot to help people out. We're, uh, we are very proud because uh, me and my American friends who are not a part of any organization, but we've been trying to get people out to convince them that it's, it's time. So, for example, recently there was a woman with uh, five children and we convinced her that she needs to get out. And now she's safe in Italy and we were coordinator her whole way from Poltava, where she's from, to Italy. And it was very, very, very hard. But... Uh, she managed it without knowing any other language than Russian and Ukrainian, so wow. pretty cool. And you have a team of people that, that's working on this? Like, uh, how many people are you cooperating with? It was two people. It's basically me and my friend Kevin Rabinovich, who is uh, one of this pro-Ukraine activists. He's now in New York, works closely with Rasom Ukraine, uh, this very, very popular nonprofit to help Ukrainians. And his mom who's just an amazing person. She's like, I just want to help people. And she was born in Kharkiv, but she immigrated to the United States when she was 16. Um, so she has been helping a lot. And knowing Russian, she was just a gem, basically. So this is, this is what this is all about right now. Not organizations, but people, 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 people. I've never seen people, regular people, who never had any experience with that, helping so much, so productively on place.
So that's... I mean, that was something we noticed, uh, you know, when we were doing volunteering in uh, Lviv, a lot of the, the volunteering opportunity, okay, like Red Cross, they said they had like tons of people sign up and everything, right? But, you know, when it came to actually like doing a lot of the stuff, uh, maybe some people wouldn't show up or something like that. Maybe there was something else going on. But, you know, there was... Uh, always a way to find a way to help i mean we just randomly stopped at a uh there's a line of uh people shoving up boxes up a flight of stairs to uh to a train uh david just like literally stepped in the middle of that line and started handing boxes over to other people um there's like i'm mean, uh, going to the synagogue they needed certain supplies and stuff like that we were able to uh get that and i mean like there's always oh, there's always a place to find something to do that's right and this is fascinating because it's very much reminiscent of the Euromaidan, <coughs> to me at least. It's this sort of uh, this this grassroots, these grassroots initiatives, which are at the root of nation building. And we saw this with the the Belarusian process as well. And you can actually draw a direct line between the um, initiative, grassroots initiatives, which sprang up in Belarus during COVID nineteen pandemic, when uh, the government basically chose to completely ignore the situation. So you had an organization like By Help, By COVID, and so on and so forth, springing up, helping people. And then these organizations carried, carried that unity into protesting. And I think similarly here in Ukraine, you have this sort of underlying protest experience of building civil society during the Euromaidan and the Orange Revolution. And that is kind of translating into robust awareness for grassroots initiatives and this understanding that you know i'm an individual but i'm a part of a nation and i can help and i can help my nation overcome uh certain difficulties i think also if mm -hmm. you see for example now ukraine um i think the view that we had mainly in the last uh eight eight nine years and even maybe uh, in the last two decades that it was a very splintered uh, nation that with with there couldn't be more bigger differences within a European nation basically uh, than in Ukraine you had always the leftern side of uh, or, or I should say actually the western side of Ukraine that was always voting pro-European candidates and you had the eastern side that was voting pro-Russian candidates mostly of course that there is a nuance but if you see like the statistics it was always like 50 you know there was a clear difference you could see a fraction a fraction in the country Correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, but I think that now maybe Ukraine has never been more united. It's incredible to see that everyone is 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 supporting Ukraine, and in Ukraine everybody seems really uh, united and and bonded with each other. So yes, partially what you said is correct. I am from Central Ukraine, um, and we're pretty close to East. And you know, when Euromaidan started. I think a lot of people think that, you know, Western Ukraine, maybe a little bit of Central Ukraine, they were like, yes, we are pro-European. Other part was like, no. But even during Euromaidan, everyone, it felt like we united. It was this moment where all the Ukrainians united, whatever language or religion, nothing, nothing mattered. For example, I am coming from Dnipro, so let's not generalize, right? Let's talk about me personally. Jewish people of my city, they, they basically right now um, gonna protect this country from a dictator who is not protecting us from Nazi regime. This is ridiculous, but this is this example of uniting. The Jewish people of my city are gonna get weapons, gonna go protect our city. And they think that they're Ukrainian and this is their land and they're not gonna leave to any other place. So I think um, Ukrainians not only united, but 
everyone should understand that being Ukrainian is not only what we see in this stereotype about Ukrainians. Mm. Being Ukrainian can be literally anything, any background, any religion, any language that you speak. I will say, unfortunately, I mean, you know, uh, I experienced a lot of this tension in my family. I was personally, when Euromaidan started, I was extremely for the Ukrainian, uh, for Ukraine, for, uh, you know, getting Yanukovych out of office. I hated that guy from, like, the moment he stepped in, and uh, seeing him get out, get out was uh, really nice, but, I mean, uh, there was tension in my family. My mom identified as a Russian for a really long time, uh, despite, you know, uh, moving to the United States from Krivoy Rogan. I mean, my uncle, he got involved with uh, some, like, very Russian nationalist groups, and there uh, there was a lot of that. He it, They found a lot of support in places like Krivoy Rogan, Mariupol, uh, where... I mean, uh, now I s there's a very stark difference compared to back then, I feel like, in a lot of the sort of pro-Russian or Russian-speaking communities there. Um, like, w in 2014, I felt like there was, uh, at least seeing my family, there was a, a bit more of that tension of, like, I don't know, we all we moved here during the Soviet period, uh, we, uh, or e even if we didn't move here, we, you know, speak Russian or whatever, uh, we don't really identify with places like Lviv, what, what is that to us? Um, uh, and, you know, and now there's this, like, new nationalism arising, or uh, still very much a new national identity, I guess. Um, and a lot of people didn't seem to uh, identify with that. I mean, now it's obviously changing. The I th uh, We had more conversations than we can count with people from, like, Kharkiv and stuff like that who, uh, you know, were like, yeah, I would have identified as Russian three weeks ago. Now I can't identify as anything but Ukrainian after they bombed, like, something 400 meters from me. Uh, like... A lot of that is changing, but even then, I feel like a lot of the conversations we had, uh, there was a lot of sort of, I wouldn't say, I won't say anger at the Ukrainian government, but still tension, like, uh, you know, it... Am I Ukrainian? I am. I have the citizen. Especially, this came up with uh, when we talked to uh, uh, people in the synagogue in Lviv. You know, it was sort of like, am I Ukrainian? I mean, uh, uh, I'm Jewish. I identify mostly as Jewish. I have Ukrainian citizenship, but they want to draft me into the army. I have a family that I don't care about uh, this uh, nation. I care about the community I live in, but the sort of citizenship, the country, I'm. It's not something that I'm willing to die for. Uh, and I don't know. See, seeing those people, they really didn't identify with the sort of uh, new national identity happening. They were just like, I live here. This is my home. I just want to live in peace. And they hate the Russians, obviously, as well. But that's, I don't know. It, to me, it didn't seem like they were uh, fully for, you know, the blue and yellow. I would say that, uh, if I might interject here, <coughs> that Ukraine made strides toward create, towards creating a sort of a modern European identity that really accepts people like uh, Jan Bilenyuk, for example, right, who's a Ukrainian, who's a, an African Ukrainian, and you know he's a he's a black guy who's a part of the Ukrainian Parliament, and he is sort of perceived as Ukrainian. Um, but I would say that the current war, and this is my this might sound semi cynical, but this is a sort of a chance for for Ukrainians, a chance for Ukraine to really forge an, an inclusive Ukrainian identity that doesn't exclude, you know, Jews or black people or non-ethnic non Ukrainians to the same degree that it did. Because obviously a lot of Ukrainian national symbols might rub some minorities the wrong way. I mean, the, for example, the synagogue that we volunteered at and leave, the, uh, the, uh, the Beis Saharan synagogue, and probably butchering the name, 
It is literally a brisk five minutes walk from the monument to Stefan Bandera, who is a famous perpetrator of the Holocaust in Ukraine. And, you know, we can sort of run circles around that, but it's just a fact that a lot of Ukrainian symbols, they do antagonize Ukrainian minorities. But I think that in the status quo, there is a chance, and Ukraine kind of been slowly moving into that direction. Uh, there is a chance to create a Ukrainian identity that is extremely inclusive, and as uh, as you said, you know everyone can be Ukrainian. I you know I don't disagree with that. I think that we are sort of on the verge of forming that new progressive, <coughs> inclusive Ukrainian identity and moving, kind of, hopefully moving further away from uh, you know Petro Poroshenko's vision of that with you know Armia Mova Vira with army language and faith and it's you know very clear the kind of army the kind of language the kind of faith that uh he was trying to sell yeah. uh, <laughs> i agree with what you said i also think that i think it very much depends where you are at of the moment and people that you speak to because i think what you said is valid and i truly believe that there are people who say this i personally have a different experience for example we've been in Dnipro, and we saw what was 2013. We saw our friends and family going to war. We saw these refugees. Uh, we felt this moment of unity there already. Also talking about the new beginning for us, um, I also agree with you, David, that of course it's gonna, it, it is an opportunity for us to unite and create this new definition of what is to be Ukrainian. I also wanted to add to what Jesse and David also told that I know a lot of guys who are Ukrainian, well, they, they don't identify as any minority and they're not going to fight. They're not going to fight. And that's okay. There are people like this. That, and that's fine. If someone don't want to fight, let them not fight. That's fine. Um, of course, it's a different conversation even uh, uh, with, with these uh, with this people. But what I want to say is people who want to protect Ukraine now, it doesn't matter who they are. For example, there are a lot of Ukrainian Tatars now um, and people of different ethnic backgrounds and ethnicities who are ready to fight and they are fighting. So I think it also very much depends on the person uh, because for me, one of the greatest examples of how minorities feel like they're Ukrainians is Asher Joseph Cherkasky. He's a Hasidic Jew from my city and he's initially from Crimea when Russians um, occupied basically his land. He came and fight in 2014 and he's very religious, very educated person and now he's back at it again fighting with his son now who's grown up and who will also join this fight. Um, at the same time I have a lot of again Ukrainian people who are not ready to fight and will never fight. So I also think it very much depends on the region and the background of these people uh, we already know a lot of Jewish people who already died within this month who decided that they want to fight. So I think it's fair mentioning them too. So uh, definitely also coming from a military context and a military background, um, there's this very old idea that <clears throat> out of like every hundred people, uh, only 10 roughly speaking are actually combative material. And then out of, out of that 10, only one of them is actually truly uh like as you would say the warrior um and that doesn't mean that everybody else there is dead weight or useless or something like that you know uh, society as a whole you know we need farmers and we need artisans and we need p 
people running student podcasts and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's definitely uh, my essential workers. Eh? Yeah, 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 essential work right here. Um, getting paid top dollar for this. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, I definitely think that um, people people should fill their temperament and should fill their role. Um, and it, there's more than one way to help out if you love your country and sometimes that's just continuing to live your life as if uh, you are not under attack and refusing to give in or live in fear. Well, that was one of the most interesting things is, I mean, when we were in Lviv, you know, we were outside of the main station, the air raid sirens would go off. Uh, this time the air raid siren went off for, uh, you know, usually it's about 20 to 30 minutes, somewhere around 5 or 6 a.m. This was middle of the day. Air raid siren went off for probably about 3 to 4 hours. Absolutely nobody ran to the to the bunkers or anything. The ears kept on living their lives. We talked to one guy who was selling Vodafones and we were like, are you scared that uh, you know, a bomb's gonna smack you in the face? And he was like, no, there Russians can't kill us. Russian bombs can't kill us. That's not going to happen. And I was like, okay, but what if one falls? And he's like, well, and I was like, okay, sounds good. We're yeah. a similar conversation with uh, the family of horses like Jews that we got uh, very close to uh, during our time there. And we were also outside in the park uh, drinking some coffee and the siren goes off and I'm like, do you guys want to leave? Right? Cause well, you know, it's, it's this guy and uh, his wife and his daughter and I'm like, do you guys want to go back to the synagogue so you can feel a little safer? He's like, no, 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 no. We are the protection of Hashem. You know, we're the protection of, the, of, of God. Nothing's going to happen to us. It's a lot of faith. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of... And this is... Ukrainian war machine right now basically runs on faith and American javelins. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in many respects, it does run on faith and ideology, uh, which is kind of... I guess contributing to the larger debate, constructivism versus realism, of how ideology quite often is more important, the mythos quite often is more important than the reality on the ground. So that's an interesting phenomenon because you also mm -hmm. see that a lot in the military uh, with um, indirect fire attacks or like mortars, like sometimes, um, uh, again, you know, this, uh, America's previous, like the war on terror is a completely, completely different con conflict. You know, it's. You know, not at all the same. But uh, the uh, a jihadi trick might be to say, for instance, you set up a mortar, you put a piece of ice inside the mortar, and then you you set the ammunition on top of the ice. The hot sun melts the ice, and then eventually the mortar goes off. He's not even there anymore. He's been gone for like five hours. But you know, the air raid, you know, the the raid siren still goes off, and everybody's running for cover. But after a couple of weeks in theater, a lot of times guys just stop caring. They stop walking. They're like, ah, if it hits me, it hits me. You know, <laughs> and, you know they, it's not even aimed at anything. It's just a, supposed to make us react. So um, I think I think it's also a good example of how quickly humans can become used to something and used to higher elevated stress levels. And um, you know, I, I know that. Uh, for instance, Maria has, there's like these uh, group chats on Telegram, for instance, where like everybody's like sharing like which, which air raids are going off or bombs are going off when, and people get very desensitized to that very quickly. Well, I mean, like when I first came there, right, uh, 
first air raid siren I hear is like 5 a.m. and I'm like terrified in my mind like oh there's a bomb gonna hit me then like I mean this is just like three or four days later I'm outside of the station and the siren goes off and I'm like well you know we talked about maybe going to a bunker but I mean whatever it's probably not gonna hit anything you know you, you we're out here anyway if we're gonna go to the uh, bunker we're gonna sit there for three four hours get nothing done you have you kind of have to keep on living life yeah I would say that this is you know this sounds like not a big deal to say me and Jesse because you know we're journalists and we have the privilege of being in Lviv and then leaving. This is obviously far more impactful to for refugees for people who are living in Ukraine right now. So it's not, it's not even this the the sensitizing as you said. It's it's more of a just adjusting to the trauma, but the trauma is still there and it's going to be there for years and years to come. Uh, I think Nick and Jesse can relate to that, but it doesn't happen to me because I already visited the war zone. But for Nick and Jesse, they were, you know, walking around and, you know, they'd hear a car honk or something like that. And, you know, in the back of the mind, they're like, oh, is that an air raid siren? First first day right. back, yeah. I'm yeah. A, I, uh, w- I mm. go to sleep at, like, I don't know, 4 a.m. or something, wake up around 8. Uh, there's an ambulance outside of the of apartment uh, and uh, like my brain just processes that like half asleep as an air raid siren I wake up like a little bit panicky I'm like oh shit you know yeah. something gonna happen and, and like, for, for us we can you know process with that and we can work with that because again we got the privilege and the the, the the privilege the ability to be in San Antonio tomorrow right yeah and I've been here um, in Krakow for two yeah. to three days you know I, I feel a lot less on edge than I was there or even the, the first couple of days after I came back but yeah. But People for many refugees, for, for many Ukrainian refugees who are now in Poland, this is very much the reality they have to live with daily. And they also have to now think, oh, what if they don't stop in Ukraine? What if they come to Poland? And I, I think it's uh, I think it's a preposterous idea that there is going to be a war between Russia and NATO. I hope it won't happen, and I don't think it will. But there, there is the reality that, you know, all these extremely traumatized people would now probably think that way, at least to some extent. So, uh, since uh, we have Maria here, who's very plugged mm-hmm. into the Jewish community, and you guys were there in Lviv doing a story on the Jewish community in Lviv, uh, I was hoping that uh, we could talk a little bit about... Uh, the Jews. Uh, Jewish <laughs> yeah. communities in Krakow <laughs> and Jewish community in Lviv. Uh, you know, Maria, Maria's uh, you know, Lviv, she's often said Lviv's one of her favorite cities, and... Uh, you know, just I would like to hear more, and uh, if you could tell our audience about what that the communities are like in our respective cities here, versus Lviv, versus. Uh, one Europe. second, before you jump into the Jewish yeah, yeah, yeah. topic, I would like to ask some Dave, David. Yeah, David. David, something, something about uh, yeah, your experience in Hong Kong you know, and also right now in Ukraine, because as you were talking <laughs> about in Ukraine, Ukrainian society can feel a, a little bit un- unite right now after this bombing, after this war is going on. But on the other side, Hong Kongese people, as I have talked to, to, to a couple of those, um, there is a sense of completely, completely the opposite. There is this um, negativity over the future and about the future of Hong Kong. So, can you, can you have the opportunity to talk to someone in Hong Kong that could tell you about how they were feeling in that moment during the civil turmoil? And in comparison to the Ukrainian people, you could talk about how, how was the feeling then of the of the civilians in that matter. Well, to be quite honest, thank you for this question, but to be quite honest, this is comparing apples to oranges uh, with uh, with Hong Kong. And I and I did speak to quite a bit people there. I actually I actually interviewed Nathan Law, who's the who was in charge of the well, didn't really have leaders, but he was one of the leaders of the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong. 
Um, and uh, he then became one of the youngest, probably the youngest member of uh, Parliament of Hong Kong, Legislative Committee of LECCO. And uh, this is the, the, the Hong Kong protests are quite different from what happens, what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, the Russian attack, even though some form of a war with Russia was going on for eight years now, the Russian, the, the Putin's invasion in the status quo, this is a sort of very sudden thing that acted as a trigger for this nation building, right? With Hong Kong, it was significantly slower. It was a bit of a slow burn, the way that mainly China kind of gained control over the island, right? And there were still these triggers, like the extradition bill, right? And that actually did help to unite if not all of Hong Kong society, but at least the youth, uh, the Hong Kong youth, it did actually, it also there was a was fact of rallying around the flag, rallying around our independence. In Hong Kong, it's slightly different because it didn't impact the older people uh, in the same way as, you know, now in Ukraine, this is sort of, you know, young and old, everybody is kind of going to the front line, if you will, and everyone is feeling like they're the front line. In Hong Kong, you know, the older people were a bit more indifferent towards towards the protests. It was primarily youth movement what was happening there, to, from, from what I know. Um, but it also, yeah, it did play a role. Like, when a larger outside force is imposing something and you, is attacking you, uh, when somebody outside of your group starts identifying you as a group, right? When Putin says, I'm going to attack Ukrainians, right? Or when Caesar and Ping says, I'm going to limit the freedoms of Hong Kongers. That group, even though they might feel divided within themselves, now they're thinking, oh, okay, these guys think that we are the same group, so we, gotta, we better think of ourselves as just this one group and act like it, right? Hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you. David, you had a question? <coughs> For Maria, oh yeah, I just I wanted uh, uh, to maybe discuss and talk about uh, you know this uh, dual identity and of the uh, Ukrainian community, Ukrainian Jewish community in Lviv and in Krakow. So it's amazing to be Ukrainian and Jewish. It's truly amazing because it gives you new struggles each and every day. <laughs> in a good sense of this word. And I did not identify as Jewish for a long time because of various reasons, but um, I've been, um, you know, discovering what does it mean to be Ukrainian and Jewish, especially when we hear so much of Russian propaganda, and for some reasons, again, touches the Jewish people, you know? Even nowadays, uh, Putin's propaganda about this denazification, whatever, again touches Jewish people. And I'm wondering, when will it end? <laughs> When will Jewish people be left alone finally? <laughs> um, but this is a great moment for all the Ukrainians to actually prove them wrong. That this is wrong what they're telling, that this is lies, that a lot of people from different continents and countries should not believe this because this is not the reality we're living in and this actually is pretty harmful for us. So hopefully if today we could discuss some of this stereotypes and break them, it would be actually pretty lovely because even though, you know, people have internet nowadays, they can Google whatever, 
a lot of people still don't fully understand um, Ukraine, Ukraine and uh, core Ukrainians and Jewish Ukrainian people. They don't. Actually, I've been in a fight with a lot of American Jewish people this month who've been posting a lot of things that I did not agree with. It was a lot of writers, it was a lot of journals, and it's actually been pretty fun because they showed that they don't understand what does it mean to be Ukrainian and Jewish. Because people still perceive Ukrainian Jews as Soviet Jews, basically. Oh, you Russian Jew, Ukrainian Jew, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's no difference, but there is a big difference, a big cultural difference, and now you should understand it because there is a very tricky situation everyone should actually understand that there is a big difference between these people it's been very interesting for me in particular uh i guess you could say as an american um seeing the rapid education going on back home you know, suddenly you know Everybody's like, was it Ki Kiev or is it Kiev or like, you know, you know my fam family members are asking me and uh, everybody's like, okay, so, uh, you know, what what what's the actual reality? Because I have this weird feeling and it's 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 hard for me, but I, I feel like a lot of American education about anything that happened behind the Iron Curtain sort of froze when the Soviet Union fell, and they're just like, okay, well that's that's the former Soviet bloc. They're still sorting things out. And um, East Block. Yeah, it's the Eastern Block. It's like land of mystery. Um, but it's been very interesting watching uh, people get sort of like this rapid education, at least back home in America, on, okay, so how are Ukrainians different? What are the cultural differences? What are the historic differences? Um, and uh, obviously that uh, Ukraine does have a pretty significant you know, minority populations of different ethnic backgrounds and different stories and different histories. Um, something else struck me very interesting, that was very interesting for me at least, was um, this, this, uh, uh, this sort of frontier spirit that a lot of uh, early Ukrainians had that reminded me a lot of um, the, the sort of American frontier spirit, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, yeah, it's actually, I can make an example. For example, I was raised in the center of Dnipro. Half of our street was Jewish, the other half Korean. So <laughs> I, I was raised, you know, seeing all this diversity. Um, because in my opinion, from what I heard, people see Ukraine as just, you know, a regular white woman who's going to flirt with you and cookie borscht, but it's just not the reality. And uh, we... Dnipro has a lot of minorities, like Crimean Tatars, like um, people who ran from North Korea in the 30s and came to Dnipro as well. We have Jewish people, we have uh, a big Armenian community, Georgian, Azerbaijani community. And all these people are valid to us. They all are Ukrainian people and they all are not leaving right now. They all are staying and they all are gonna, you know, they, they are identifying as Ukrainians. So just wanted to mention that I think it's important I, I think uh, maybe to jump back on the strain of thought what David had with uh, how people are getting rapidly informed um, about about Ukraine now and about what's going on and um, suddenly like getting news again about that region that they actually somehow forgotten about since the since the Cold War um, I think for example if I can see it from the perspective of the Netherlands I'm, I'm also like almost surprised that people maybe knew so so little of uh, and we are we share the same continent 
Um, a lot of people I, I spoke about, uh, I spoke with uh, from the Netherlands. They are now, for example, also really scared to go to to Poland or other other countries in East Europe because they think that the war is also taking place there, or at least so close that you can that you can hear the bombs. Let's say. Meanwhile, the war has been going on since 2014. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ba basically. But well, it depends. <laughs> It, it is for me unbelievable, and unfortunately, this is uh, all these these sentiments and 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 these this unknowingness uh, about about parts of Eastern Europe are also fed, for example, by uh, persons in our politics. We have this politician, and he is literally voicing the things that the Kremlin says. He is just a propagandist of the Kremlin. He is the only one in the parliament that is supporting uh, Russia in this. He is uh, keeping a monologue about. Um, about how, uh, how how the the Russians have their rights to take back their their territory and how it's all NATO's fault and uh, by by expanding etc. and it, it just keeps surprising me how many people at least if you have to follow I know it's not a good reference Facebook comments but yeah please uh, David you had to yeah I'd, I'd interject here because I think there is a dangerous um, and I'm I'm not familiar with. Netherlands, you said? Netherlands, yeah. Netherlands, yeah. I'm not familiar with Netherlandish politics. Uh, but uh, in general, I think there is a there is a dangerous precedent, or rather a, a dangerous pattern of thinking in the West to label anyone who is critical of the current narrative on the situation as Putin apologist or Putin stooge. I mean, we've gotten to such a ridiculous point that, you know, Mersheimer, who is an extremely respected, respected professor of international relations, uh, is being able be, be, be being labeled as Putin apologist or Kremlin stooge, whereas you know in reality he is anything but, and uh, you know an imperial American imperialist. Uh, I guess if you if, if you need to, I guess if I needed to classify Mearsheimer's political uh, position, real. offensive realism is as close to kind of American hegemonic imperialism as it gets. He's definitely not a Putin stooge. And uh, it, it pains me to see that a lot of valid criticisms towards Western policies, towards Russia and towards the region more broadly, are painted as, you know, Putin apologism. You know, as, you know, oh, you're being paid by the Kremlin because you say that NATO should have probably adjusted its policy towards the Eastern neighborhood, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's absurd, and I, and I don't think that's right. But again, like, I'm not, I'm not saying it to address your point or to mischaracterize your point. I'm not familiar with that politician. This is just something that I think needs to be a part of the discussion. Absolutely. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this politician is a bit of a... I mean, he, he, he calls Putin a hero and, right. and is, is literally like going, he, he has also been very, very deep in, in conspiracy theories the last, for the last two years and so deep like 9-11 uh, uh, was all a hoax, uh, there's a pedophilic <laughs> network under, under the Dutch parliament, uh, you know, so he's going Wait, so deep. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but I absolutely agree and we've also seen this, uh, this, this tendency in, for example, the migration crisis and everybody who had a little bit of criticism on the migration crisis is labeled as racist, uh, racist, and bam, the conversation is closed. There's no possibility to uh, to or, or to open a narrative here or uh, or a discussion about the topic. So I absolutely agree with you that that people nowadays in in uh, European countries label each other too quickly as extremist or the other side, which is dangerous because you close people out that actually have maybe gender like very normal concerns or just concerned about their personal life but if they are pushed away as extremists or people with a dangerous opinion 
then you close these people out and that then you push them in that direction because then they see no other option than going to people who are actually listening to them i've uh, i've had a massive amount of frustration <coughs> uh, in discussing the jewish community where uh, i've been told uh, probably two or three times in the ukraine that there is no anti-semitism that uh jews aren't being targeted and uh meanwhile going to the jewish community i mean first of all seeing my father his being him being targeted uh living in ukraine among ukrainians in the soviet times and obviously it was a soviet times but it was different but you know still and then uh talking to jews in the synagogue a lot of them were experiencing anti-semitism directly um and i mean you can see pretty evidently i mean uh, obviously azov isn't the ukrainian military but azov still exists a lot of them still fly nazi flags uh s14 a very right-wing militant uh group they got a uh contract after a uh, euromaidan with the kiev city government to uh go and uh patrol the streets they were beating uh, migrants uh the they're very heavily explicitly nazi uh or fascist and um you know that's not to say that's reflective of ukrainian society it very much isn't ukraine is a very diverse place but uh that is to say that ukraine uh you know to say that there isn't anti-semitism there to say i've heard a couple and uh referred to a couple of times as russian propaganda that there is anti-semitism there i find that kind of terrifying because you know um what what happens when a lot of these groups end up actually getting a lot of power if they like hopefully not yeah but what happens if they do to to be fair the sort of the common repostal to what you're saying jesse is that azov and right-wing groups in ukraine have very little uh influence in ukrainian parliament and there was actually a comparison uh you know doing rounds on the internet where you know, they ranked a bunch of European countries uh, on how much influence the far right has in their parliaments. And Ukraine is, you know, at the bottom. Like, Greece and, uh, you know, Croatia and whatnot, they're at the top. Ukraine is, I don't think it even makes the top ten. But that's not important because Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian right-wingers, they chose a different avenue. It's like, I monitor Ukrainian Nazi channels and I monitor Ukrainian Nazi discourse. They explicitly say that they don't really care about parliamentary politics yeah. and they're interested in getting to the guns. And a lot of them were actually very excited uh, from, from what I read uh, about the war because they were saying this is an opportunity for us to actually win some land for ourselves. One, one of the primary yeah. groups uh, defending uh, Kharkiv, they directly call themselves the Freikorps, which is, you know, a very explicit name for, uh, you know, there, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Yeah. You know who they are. And they've got, they've got so many guns. they got javelins, grenades from the uh, Ukrainian military. And it makes sense why the Ukrainian military would give them that. That's but true. it's still terrifying. You know, okay, once the war ends, hopefully soon, are they gonna? Is the Ukrainian military gonna take them back? And if they try, are the groups gonna give their guns back? I don't think so. Well, um, I think it's <coughs> it's it worth saying that as a person from Dnipro, I know personally what is Azov. Moreover, at the age of fifteen, I went there to listen to the lectures, what people are talking about, because I was very interested on whatever they're doing. I went there. Um, and to say about this extremist nationalist groups, as David mentioned before, the number is pretty small still. Of course, what you're worried about is valid, especially for Jewish people. You should start worrying way before things happen. This is how our 
our people survived, basically. You need to start warring way before things happen. I, I get it, it's valid. At the same time, a lot of this nationalistic groups, they have a very, very low percentage of these people who actually are doing this stuff. Also, um, you want to say something? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll address, I only want to interrupt you. Sure, it's just sure. a, a good German uh, proverb that I remember. Okay, yeah. that's good. Um, uh, so the, the percentage is very low and there's uh, so far nothing documented that these people targeted or killed Jewish people during the war so far, which is a good thing. I think we should rely on facts here, which of course we should be emotional as Jewish people, but let's rely on facts. Nothing has happened to Jewish people that Ukrainian army or Ukrainian extremist group did so far that was documented. Of course, we're gonna keep our eye on it. Um, at the same time, to be fairly honest with you, <laughs> um, a lot of Jewish people were in Azov and has been in Azov for a very long time. And uh, um, the situation is that, of course, there will be people who will be targeting Jews, be anti-Semitic, do horrible things to Jewish people, as any country. And as a couple of years showed, even the United States were supposed to be the safest place ever for Jewish people was not. Uh, in New York, for example, the biggest um, amount of crimes based on religion was New York uh, for, for Jewish people. I was terrified to read that because a lot of Jewish people live in New York. So this shows us that there will be anti-Semitism. There is anti-Semitism in Ukraine as well. But so far, I don't think there should be things that we actually need to worry about because uh, there are a lot of Jewish people in power in Ukraine. So they're not just a separated group somewhere waiting for others to come and get them. Uh, Jewish people are in power. Jewish people are mayors, then government and parliament. Jewish people are in the army. In the army, a lot of Jewish people are in the army. So, so far, of course, being worried is valid, but I wouldn't be so critic critical. So I, I would say that you know, I, I agree with your points. Um, in general, in the status quo, there is a war going on in Ukraine. I don't think that this discussion, uh, the discussion of massive Nazi problem that Ukraine has, and it's a massive problem, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Um, I don't think that this should take away from the fact that Ukraine is currently fighting for its independence from Russia and that Russia is waging uh, what is essentially a genocidal campaign against Ukrainians. Now, with all that being said, you know, we should still care about Ukrainian refugees. In fact, we should care more about Ukrainian refugees. Uh, the United States and the United Kingdom especially should open our borders to, uh, uh, to Ukrainians. And, you know, the United States only hosted, housed, I, I think it's, it's like a ridiculous number, like seven Ukrainian refugees over the past weeks. It, it should be seven seven hundred thousands probably at this point. We, we should, you know, we should literally fly people out of Poland to the United States if they if they so choose, uh, and house them there. Uh, with all that being said, there is a there is a good German saying that emerged after the Second World War. If you sit in a dining table, uh, if with fourteen people sit sit in a dining table and one of them is a Nazi, that means everybody who sits in the dining table is a Nazis. So if you have an organization, Azov, where, which is, what is it, like several thousand, um, in which only few members are 
explicitly nasty because I know I I, I, sp I spoke to people I spoke to people at Azov I know I, I, I monitor them I follow them um, many of them are you know just your good old nationalists don't really have a lot of anti-semitism going in them or a lot of Nazi you know uh, Nazi aesthetics but if it's if you're in a unit that is the members of which are explicitly Nazi you know that you know that that basically makes you Nazi and the problem is Ukrainian national identity up to this point, and that's why I'm saying there's an, an opportunity to reforge Ukrainian national identity. This war is an opportunity to reforge Ukrainian national identity to something more in inclusive and progressive. Uh, but prior to this point, uh, figures like Stefan Bandera, figures like uh, even you know going as back as Bohdan Khmelnytsky, for example, these are the same people that if you know if you read an Israeli textbook, right? These are the villains. These are the bad guys of the Jewish history, and there is no going around that. Uh, of course, Ukraine is basically an abuse victim, right? It's a victim of imperialist, imperialistic abuse from the Russian, uh, from the Russian side. Uh, but it doesn't take away from the fact that Ukrainian national ideology that was perpetuated by the Ukrainian state, starting from the Orange Revolution and uh, into the uh, into the post-Euromaidan era has elements which are extremely problematic for Jewish people and should be extremely concerning for Jewish people. Uh, things like uh, veneration <coughs> of, uh, you know, former SS auxiliary corps. Things like veneration of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, U, the UPA, right? These should not be accepted in uh, Ukrainian society. Right, and this, these are a problem, and the, these are a problem that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be talked about openly. But at the same time, we should make clear that, you know, Ukraine is worth fighting for. Right, these are problems that can be solved and should be solved. Um, after the war, they might be addressed during the war. I think, I mean, I think there is still an existing U.S. Congress ban on sending weapons to the Azov Battalion. And I think that should still be, uh, that probably should still be enforced. Uh, but it shouldn't take away from support uh, towards Ukraine. Yes, I agree yeah. because um, I hear this terrifying narrative from a lot of people from abroad, especially from Jewish communities um, of the United States, is that why should I support Ukraine? It has been torturing, killing Jewish people for a long time, and even now. There are these nationalistic groups that keep torturing these people, and I feel mm, like this is wrong in my opinion a little bit, because um, yes, they do exist, I agree with David, this is wrong, and this should not be like this, um, but as we say right now in our Ukraine community, yes, this is a problem, but we'll talk about it after war ends, because right now we just don't have any resource for that, unfortunately. Uh, not not emotional, financial, uh, just you know, fighting for survival. So I agree with David. That's that's valid. I I do I do I, I do think it should still be somewhat well, not necessarily addressed during the war, but it, we should be conscious about it. If you know Azov goes to you know Azov gives a call to do that tomorrow and says, hey guys, could you like give us I don't know some ridiculous amount of weapons and a, and a fighter jet. I think it would be warranted for you know actors, for local activists, and for Poland to be like, 
you know what? There's probably another unit that doesn't fly swastikas that we could <laughs> give this stuff to. You know? Yeah, yeah, at the same time, at the same time, talking about this stuff again, um, I agree. And, sorry to interrupt. Could you yeah. maybe quickly for the listeners explain who is Azov? Yes, yeah, so... Because uh, <laughs> we didn't actually talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So there is an Azov battalion, which is a military unit, and there's also Azov organization uh, that creates a certain uh, lectures, master classes, basically is, um, you know, gives some narrative, some agenda uh, for Ukrainian nationalists. Um, talking about Azov battalion, military battalion, not Azov organization that gives lectures and stuff like that, even though majority of the lectures I visited of theirs, they never mentioned any anti-Jewish agenda. But I agree with David that there is, there is one. I just didn't experience it myself. Um, Azov was one of these battalions who basically saved a lot of Ukrainian land uh, during 2014 and still is a very powerful military battalion and people count on it. A lot of people count on Azov. So even though a lot of things they do are wrong, we cannot just put black and white here on Azov from my point of view as a Ukrainian because we count on Azov. A lot of people are basically surviving because of this military battalion, which is pretty good. And they've been fighting Russia for this nine years now. I think it's a, it seems to be, at least from my standpoint as an outsider, that <clears throat> a very unfortunate fact that Azov attracted a lot of young men of the militant mindset who may not necessarily espouse or agree with the ideology but uh they saw an opportunity at the time to respond to a call to uh defend their homeland and uh, uh joined an organization that as a young man they probably should have thought twice about but they were effective and that is also part of what makes them something dangerous worth talking about and keeping a very very strong eye on because uh it's it's not super often that uh, these sort of ad hoc militias with strong ideologies are actually effective um or get anything done or garner an international reputation um so yeah that's uh <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I'm an outsider here, but uh, it definitely seems to be, for me, my thought. What, what I'm terrified... Uh, I'd say, oh, ahead. no, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, this is a very quick interjection. I think that's from an American perspective and from a Western perspective. Uh, we, um, uh, the United States has a, um, uh, how would I put it, um, a shaky track record when it comes to arming extremists. And uh, that... Um, Biting us in the ass, if yeah, I yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. so that, that's what I'm terrified. Is this this entire yeah. situation reminds me a little bit of, uh, and I in no way want to compare uh, the Ukrainian government to the Mujahideen straight up, right? But in Afghanistan in the 1980s, the Mujahideen were a, a very diverse group. It included a lot of people who wanted to create a liberal democracy in uh, in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, I would say even the majority of the group was very much not like Islamist nationalists, right? But after uh, after the Soviets left, the Mujahideen split up, and the Taliban, which was maybe I don't know, twenty uh, percent, which is significantly less than uh, in any way than right wing nationalists make up of Ukraine, but still it was about 20, like twenty percent. Um, 
the they uh, the, the Taliban ended up uh, taking a lot of the guns and they ended up taking uh, power. I don't think that Nazis or fascists or whatever are going to take power. Uh, that's a little ridiculous. But I do. I'm kind of scared that this may end up becoming like you know. Uh, a larger problem for Ukraine in the long term, especially if Ukraine does want to continue, you know, having a Jewish president, being a liberal democracy, uh, being uh, a more accepting society, which to me, I mean, it overwhelmingly seems to. There is still that problem, and I'm, I am kind of terrified that uh, at the uh, end of the day, after all of this is over, we have created almost a sort of uh, Ukrainian Taliban, which might try to, uh, you know, do militant attacks or... Uh, try to influence politics in a not very peaceful, not very liberal, democratic way. I mean, they just have a lot of guns, you know? Guns are all everything. To, to, to be quite fair, and yes, political power does grow out of a barrel of a gun, um, to be quite fair, um, this should not really be the focus of the conversation when it comes to Ukraine. What we That's should fair. be talking That's about... Um, there, there, there are issues with the way we talk about Ukraine and the West, and uh, people... Especially in the leftist circles, they tend to talk about what we just spend time talking about. And then you have, you know, people who just love to talk about, you know, military victories of Ukrainians and sort of the military situation on the ground. I think what we should talk, we should talk about in the West, and uh, I'll make an exception this time, and I'll consider Poland to be the West. Um, uh, what we should talk about in the West is uh, refugees and what the hell do we do to accommodate as many refugees as possible and what the hell do we do to get out as many people as possible. Because Nine million this, people. Because this, this is where we can actually do something. This is where you, our listeners, can actually do something. Because you can call your representatives, uh, you can uh, you know, you can protest, you can organize, you can volunteer. If you live in Poland, I'm so sorry. Um, you might actually, you know, come on, you know, railway stations and help, you know, help carry heavy loads of products. So, if you know, have a room in your house, help host anything. refugees. That's right. Yeah. And that should be, that should be the focus of the conversation. All these, you know, Nazi stuff, whatever, this, this, this can be sorted out by, uh, by experts and there should be a broader social conversation about it, uh, maybe after the war. But right now, the focus should be on getting as many Ukrainians out of Ukraine as possible. Amen. I think that's a, that's a very also uh, maybe a right moment to start uh, announcing the ending of this uh, of this uh, session today. Um, and then we end with a, with a good note, a hopeful note that everybody will keep donating and and helping uh, as much Ukrainians as possible. Um, and first of all, I would like to thank our guests, uh, David, Jesse, uh, Nicholas, and Maria. Of course, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think this is. Uh, <laughs> An incredible opportunity for us uh, as an IS podcast uh, today to uh, yeah to 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 do this. It's it's fantastic. So thank you so much, David. You wanted to add something? Uh, yes, I just wanted to say that um, we'll be putting in the links for this podcast some opportunities for you to donate or to help out if you want. And uh, I wanted to give Maria the closing remarks, and she can give us some uh, t give us some information on how you can help in specific terms. So Absolutely. Maria. Absolutely. Maria, please. So there are two things that you can do. First, you can help the refugees, or if you want, you can help uh, Ukrainians who decided to stay. Um, so how can you help the refugees? If you're in Poland, 
there are a couple of organizations, uh, we will attach the links below, that are heavily involved in helping refugees and housing, helping them to go further, which is super important right now because both Warsaw and Krakow are overwhelmed. So it's very important for people to go further. Uh, please keep on donating, bringing clothing, bringing food, sharing, reposting, even reading the history of Ukraine, which is super important, guys. And second is, of course, helping people who stayed in Ukraine. For this, there's this main NGO. I'm going to attach the link. For people who don't want to donate on arms, don't you worry. This organization does not provide any arms, any weapons, only helping with uh, armor for the army. Also, there are a lot of opportunities to donate for people who want to get out from Ukraine. They're still there. I'm going to also attach a link of organization that I know personally who helps to evacuate people from Kharkiv, which is eastern Ukraine right now. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much, Maria, for that, uh, for that last note. Uh, also, maybe to you uh, listeners, uh, share as much as possible also this podcast so uh, we, we can reach as many people as possible and uh, we can all help the Ukrainians in the best way possible. Thank you so much. Uh, also to Thank you, you listeners. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, Thank you. And um, have a great day. Bye.